Get on my magic carpet real quick. Uh, I've been thinking about it for like a month now. Anyway, <laughs> good morning, City Light. Uh, my name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, man, we're in our third week in our series called The Heart of God. We're going to be in this series for 11 years, uh, but we're going to hit it one, like one summer at a time. So know that we're not going to keep doing this uh, thing. But nonetheless, uh, we, because we're in our third week, we're in the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. Uh, yes, I said Leviticus. Most of us probably haven't read that book, and that's okay. Uh, we're going to look at it a little bit today. If you have a Bible, I hope that you do, uh, open it up on your phone or, or, or your physical copy to chapter 1 of Leviticus. Now, as we, as we look at this broad overview, what we're being able to see is like, how does God uniquely display himself and his heart in each and every book of the Bible? So we get the privilege, like we did last week and the week before, to see like God's heart is for multiplication in the book of Genesis. You just see it so clearly. Uh, you see God's heart displayed in freeing people holistically in the book of Exodus. And so today when we're looking at Leviticus, what we're going to look at is God's heart for holiness, Yes, holiness. Uh, the reason why I say it that way is because I think holiness can be a touchy subject for us, right? So when we think about holiness, a lot of times we think about what we should do and what we should not do, right? A bunch of do's and don'ts, and then we start to think, man, that's what Christianity is about, right? You do all the right things, you say the right things, and don't do all the wrong things. And, and maybe some of us has grown up just hearing a lot of what like you need to do for Jesus rather than what Jesus has done for you. And so when you hear holiness, it makes you kind of uncomfortable. But what, what I want to say is, yes, we ought to cling to the grace of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross for us. Yes, and amen, we should cling to that. We should celebrate that. That is Christ exalting, Christ glorifying, that we that we celebrate that Jesus did in fact die and give us the ultimate grace as a free gift, not because of what we've done, but what he has done for us. But God doesn't simply look at you and say, okay, I've died for you. I've saved you. Now it's done. Uh, the work of saving you is done, but the work of sanctifying and making you holy is not. So we, we must not cast aside or forget that he saved us not just from sin, but to something else. Uh, last week, Ricky talked about how uh, God not only saved Israel from their sin and from their bondage, but he also saved them to himself. And so there's, that's an accurate picture. And when you're saved to God and when you approach God, well, guess what? Things become more holy as they approach God. And so in the same way, we ourselves become more holy as we approach God. And so for many of us, when we think of holiness, it's more of an abstract thought, right? But the Bible actually makes it more tangible and actually an attainable thing in this life. Holiness is a very real thing and something that God would call us into. And so when we look at the book of Leviticus, that's what we're going to see, is that God not only is holy, but he also calls his people to be holy as well. And so let's look at that first verse in Leviticus 1.1. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, I'm not going to say what he said, but we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> so my first observation in Leviticus is God is holy and we are not. Simple, 
God's holy, we are not. And so in the first verse, though, I think it gives us a clue into how God is going to reveal himself in his heart through the rest of the book. Because he's basically saying, man, even people like Moses, like the top of the food chain when it comes to spirituality with the people of Israel, even he can't enter God's presence. So you see, if you look at verse 1, it says, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. You see that? So that means Moses wasn't in the tent with God in his presence. No, he was outside of God's presence. And so much of the the latter part of Exodus, when we were looking at that book, it was dedicated to God's people building a tabernacle so God's presence would dwell in that tabernacle and be amongst God's people. But the problem is, he, could, he was amongst them, but they could not be there in with his presence. And so, so they were set apart, and the only way they could actually be a part of his presence is to be holy themselves. And so we have to ask the question, why, though? Right? Like, why can't people enter God's presence? And much less, why can't God's people enter his presence without being holy? Well, simply put, because God himself is holy, right? Like, the holiness of God is hard for us to, to completely grasp hold of. And I think, by and large, the reason why we can't grasp it is because it's not us. Right? It's not us. It's not something we see in all of creation as something being holy. And so while we're created in God's image, yes, which means we do carry some of his attributes, right? So like we can, we can exemplify mercy and joy and love and grace toward others, but we can't do holiness on our own, right? That's, that's some, holiness is something completely other than us. Holy is not something that we will do or, or participate in just by being human, right? It's not a part of our human nature. God's holiness is completely other, wholly separate, and it's even more than just, practically speaking, perfection and sinlessness. It is that, but it's even more. It's just, it is what sets God apart from all of creation, you see, in Genesis 1 and 2, God had his people dwelling in his presence. Remember that, just that beautiful scene that happened for like one second, um, that people were dwelling in God's presence. They were perfectly uh, glorifying him with each and every aspect of their life and who they are in their being, and then they sinned, right? Like they disobeyed God, they broke God's law, and basically severed the relationship that they had with God in the way it was, and so they had to be pushed out of God's presence. You see, that was the start of that reality, that man can't be in God's presence. And then the entire Bible, from that point forward, is trying to set that wrong back to right. That wrong being God's creation, his image bearers, rebelling against him, and so they need to be holy image bearers, be brought back to that reality. And so the greatest barrier between you and me and God, the greatest barrier between us and God is our sin nature. It's the fact that we have sin, we're enslaved by it, we're ruled by it. We can't help but to sin and sin a lot. We can't help it, right? Like there's nothing we can do to fight that on our own. All people are born into sin. You and I, we inherited it actually. Like that story about Adam and Eve is not just a story. They are our, our, our father and mother of all of creation, all of humanity. They gave us this inheritance called sin, Sin in the Bible is described as rebellion against God. And so when that happened, it became a part of our DNA. So like eye color is passed down through inheritance and that sort of thing, our DNA, and so is skin tone and that sort of thing. Sin is also a part of that DNA that's built in the human structure. And so our first father passed that down to us from generation to generation to generation until now. Now, some of you in the room might not agree with me. 
That, that, which, which is a fair thing. I get it. Like some of us might think that, no, people are born naturally good and then their experiences corrupt that, right? Like that, that's a common thought process. But let me do a case study for one second. Children. Okay, like if you look at kids, I don't know if we can go with that, right? So think about it. So do we regularly, you know, teach our kids to lie and be super selfish, right? Like that's, that's common parenting. No, no, it's not. Like we actually have to teach them the opposite. I don't know how many times my wife and I have to go to our kids, hey, speak respectfully and be gracious and generous to your siblings, right? Like it's a constant teaching. We don't have to teach them to lie. They do that on their own just fine. Like mine naturally comes out of a toddler, right? Like it's mine, right? Selfishness, natural, built into them. You have to train them to walk in something other than that. Now, we as adults aren't too far from that either, right? Like just think about going to an airport. Airports are so difficult. I've been in and out of them a little bit lately. And when you go in, you like watch all these people kind of crowd in their line. They're like, hey, are you number 56? I'm 55. Um, Right? Like there's just this natural selfishness. I need to get on the plane before you so my back can go up there and I can get the the aisle seat. Right? Like there's this natural bent of selfishness in us that says I'm going to seek out for me. We have to be taught something other. Right? And Leviticus 1 through 7 is teaching Israel, the, the, the chapters 1 through 7, is teaching Israel, hey, this is what it takes to consistently sacrifice for your sin over and over and over because you have a lot of it. You see, sin required lots of sacrifices of different kinds of animals, and sin ultimately required death. In chapter 10 of Leviticus, there's a guy named Nadab and Abihu. Don't know why they chose those names, but those are their names. Uh, they're Aaron's sons who were high priests in Israel, and they were, they were setting out to, to make a, a burnt offering for the Lord, right? And so they, the problem is, though, they used the wrong fire, okay? God commanded, this is how you make this sacrifice. This is how you do it. And they decided, hey, I'm going to get a little creative and use different fire to burn these incense, right? So, so they did that, and trouble struck, Okay, so, so basically, catch this. This is basically one of those circumstances where God says, hey, I want you to approach me in this way, and you decide I'm going to come on my terms, right? And here's what happened. Leviticus 10, 2 through 3. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Ah. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You see, these men were killed because sinfully they cut a corner. You see, they, they, they cut a corner on that. And their father Aaron heard the declaration from the Lord that, that they would be wholly sanctified to glorify the father. And so as a father, man, his tendency, his, his leaning, I no doubt was like, man, I want to defend my kids. I want to defend my kids. But then he heard from the Lord and said, man, there, there is no defense. They sinned against the holy God. And so the just penalty for sin, the, the outflow of sin is ultimately death. God is holy. He is not only about forgiveness and freedom, but he is about his and his people's holiness. You see, he couldn't have stopped at Exodus for us, right? Like if he stopped at Exodus, just freed him out of slavery and then gave them his commandments, that would have been really good and helpful. However, those people will continue to sin and continue to rack up the debt of sin in their life. He's given them the command, but haven't, they haven't changed their hearts, right? Their hearts haven't changed, and so the debt will pile up, and so he had to continue to give them more so they might understand what the heart of God is. They were building up a debt payment that they couldn't pay off on their own. 
You see, our sinfulness, our sinful nature makes it impossible for us to approach God in his holiness. So God had to make a way for us. Flip in your Bibles to Le- uh, Leviticus 16, verses 32 through 34. One more page. Maybe. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. Wearing the holy linen garments, he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for, him, for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year, because, once a year, because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. And so the second observation of Leviticus that we see is God supplies the means of holiness. We don't. We do not. Uh, in God's goodness and his mercy, he sees that his people cannot approach him on their own, and so he doesn't leave us there, right? He, he didn't leave them separated from him in their sin. No, he provided something called atonement. Atonement, simply put, is, is a means, a, a ransom or a payment of a debt. And so all people are a sin against a holy God, and the price is not simply you doing enough good things to outweigh your bad things. Actually, that's not payment. That's hoping that your nothing actually will pay for something. It's hoping that you can double up on your good deeds so that it can outweigh the bad things that you have done or are doing, and it doesn't work. Let me give you a scenario. Say that I've raped and murdered someone. Okay, I, 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 I committed heinous crime, and then uh, I got put in jail here in Lincoln, and, and, I, and while I was in jail, I was awaiting my court date, and then my court date arrives, and as it arrives, I sit in the courtroom, and I say, yes, judge, I plead guilty for those crimes. However, may I plead my case that I have helped out with disaster relief, I have helped uh, with uh, trafficked women, I've pastored a church, I've served the poor in our city, I would argue that I've done more good things than these two bad things would equate. Now, should this judge let me off? No, like she'd be a horrible judge, right? Like this, this judge, she would be a terrible judge if she said, yeah, you're right. You've done enough good things to outweigh the bad. See, that's not a payment. It still doesn't negate the magnitude of my sin and the debt of my sin and how it builds up. The maximum punishment is what we all deserve because we sinned against a holy God. And that maximum punishment is death. And it says we continue to seek ourselves and we continue to not seek God. God had to provide a way to pay for that debt because we couldn't do it on our own. And so to remedy that reality, he created the Day of Atonement. You see, the priests would place their hands on a goat's head, signaling the fact that their sins and the people of God's sins would be transferred to this goat who would eventually be killed for their sins. He'd die. You see, atonement means that the price is paid and the requirement for that payment is death, bloodshed. And so in order for us to be given life, a life was required. And so the Day of Atonement teaches us about salvation, right? It teaches us that, that our sin needs to be taken care of by someone's bloodshed. Now, that could either be ours or a substitute. Leviticus 16 serves as a placemark, actually. When you look at this book right here, this, this, this whole chapter, it's a placemark showing us what Christ would ultimately do on the cross, right? The perfect goat who would shed his blood on the one day for all time day of atonement that he would die on. 
You see, he is perfect. He is without sin. He is holy. And yet, he allows sinful man to lay their hands on him as the sacrificial goat and pass our sin on to him and was ultimately executed by them for that sin. You see that? Like that's what Le- Leviticus 16 is showing us is that that payment was paid on the cross. We are sinful, God is holy, and yet God made a way for us to not only have freedom from sin, but freedom toward him, meaning we can enter his presence because of it. You see, it had to be paid. We, instead of us providing the ultimate sacrifice, the maximum punishment for our sin, Jesus did it for us. And so if you're sitting here thinking, man, I can get to God on my own terms. I don't need that. Man, you got a whole other thing waiting for you. You have death waiting for you. The punishment for sin is death. But the free gift of God that delivers eternal life is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and trusting in him alone as your payment, as your atonement. And so the call today is, would you receive that? If you haven't already trusted that reality, I I promise you, that's the one that's given to you for free. It doesn't cost you anything. And so in God's divine work to free us from the power of sin, he pays for the punishment of sin as well. And when he does that, we get welcomed into his new family. We become his new people. He indwells us with his presence, the Holy Spirit of God in us. And guess what the byproduct of that ought to be? Holiness. You see, if God dwells in us, we should be progressively becoming more and more like him, like Jesus. And so pick it up with me in Leviticus 19. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. Happy Father's Day. Uh, And you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. So the second observation, or third observation that we have here is God requires holiness. We become holy. He requires holiness, and therefore we become holy. So God's people are now being established, right? Like you see this people, Israel, they're being established. They've been freed from Egypt, and and God has walked with them through the wilderness, and now he's establishing with them, this is how you relate to me and we relate to each other. So he's given them a a system and and, and laws to obey, and these laws and rituals were, were built for Israel to be separate, right? So they were supposed to be separate from other people. So catch this. Chapter 16 and 17 show that God paid for their sins, the atonement sacrifice for their sins. So they were freed from the penalty of sin, and now he's removing the ever-presence of sin in their life called holiness. And so he still required that of his people. So now we're moving into 18 through 20 in the book of Leviticus and starting to see how that plays out. And so what God does, he establishes them by explaining this is what it looks like to walk in holiness as the people of God. And so he's like, man, here's the means of holiness, atonement, but then you ought to walk in that means as well. So in order for God's people to be God's people, they must also be godly people is what he's saying here, right? So reading in Leviticus, it can, it can get very confusing, right? Because we have to ask this question. What do we do as 21st century Christians with all of these laws and rules, right? Like, do we need to obey them? We're God's new covenant people. We've been redeemed by the cross and not redeemed by the goat. And so do we obey all of these laws, right? It's a valid question. But first, we have to ask the question, what is God doing in Leviticus, 
right? Like, like why did he write this book? Well, here's the storyline. Up until this point, they were not established as a people. Israel was not. They weren't established as a people. They were Abraham's family. So his family grew pretty big, and then they all got enslaved by a group of people, and they grew really big, and God just freed them after 400 years by being under some other king in some other nation and saying, now I'm going to make for, for myself a country of people, a different grouping of people. And in order to have that, you actually have to create a new system that they're, that's different than the ones that they have been a part of. They need to be set apart as a holy nation. And he even established that in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. He says, You yourselves have, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now notice that God said, You will be. Which means they're, they're not that people yet. Like, they're not the priests or the holy nation yet. They, they were a group of people who were enslaved for 400 years under the kingship of other people. And now they needed God to establish them. And not only set them up with legal systems and rules, but even give them a system of morality that's wholly separate. Because here's the problem. If God's people looks like every other nation then every other nation is not going to look at them and say they're God's people, right? They're like, you're no different than us. You're not set apart by God. If anything, when you look at the book of Leviticus, it's concise when it comes to establishing a whole other nation, right? Like he is establishing a country altogether. And so for us today, catch this, we're not Israel. We're not Israel in the sense that we're not an ethnic and national people of God. Okay, contrary to popular belief, United States of America, not God's country. We are, okay? Like, we are God's country. His people, all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world, we collectively are Jesus' nation, not the place that we stand in now. Now, remember, God set his people apart, Israel, to be a blessed nation that's a blessing to other nations, right? And as we followed that narrative, well, they didn't do that very well, right? They actually became an isolated nation, and they certainly weren't a holy nation. And so what Jesus did, he came on the scene and said, you know what? I'm going to scatter this ethnic group of people, and I'm going to have people from all nations be a part of who I am. And those people will be scattered throughout all the nations that aren't their own. That's what God's country and nation looks like, meaning... God's people live in nations that aren't the place that he ultimately wanted for them. There's a place that he, this is not our home. Like if you look at Israel, they have a promised land that's coming up, right? They're going to enter the promised land. Well, even that's not the final destination that God has set apart for his people. And so I say all of that to give context to answer the question of what do we do with all of these laws today? You see, we don't live in that time We don't live in that place. God's not establishing a country of people. And so we can't look at these as a list of rules that we just need to follow, right? But we have to ask ourselves when we look at the text of Leviticus is, what does this display about God's heart and build principles on that? How does this display God's heart in our interaction with him and also with each other in the world around us that is his? You see, we don't, we don't just dismiss the book because we're not a part under that law anymore. We don't dismiss it because it's God's word, right? And so what we do is we take the whole of Leviticus as revelation and not regulation, meaning it reveals more about God's heart and less about some rules we ought to follow. And so when we see be holy as I am holy in Leviticus 19.1, or Leviticus 
what we're saying is, man, we're building the principle of seeing how God operates and sees the world and how we ought to relate to it with him. And holiness is the attribute that he displays for us, right? Holiness is, is, is what he's showing us the display of God's people interacting with him and each other looks like. And so it starts out verse nine, or chapter 19 of Leviticus, and it's showing that holiness is not only expressed vertically, but also horizontally. But let's start with the, the vertical. So it's, it's displayed vertically first with our relationship with God. So he says, you must keep the Sabbath. Do not turn to idols or to make yourself gods. And so what he's saying is, in keeping the Sabbath and not having idols or gods that you worship, God is at the center, at the heart of your life. You see, God's heart desire in holiness is that his people would have his heart as the foundation of their own heart, right? You see that? So while the Sabbath is not something that we practice in the same way that the Israelites did, it's still a continual lesson for us to learn that God doesn't just want to be first on your list of things to do, but he wants to be the foundation of everything you do. Does that make sense? You see, the culture that we live in is actually one of those things that we have to fight against in that way. So we have the culture of, like, work, right? That's a, that's a God for us where, like, it's the American dream. The way you get it, you work hard, you work harder, and you work even harder, and you'll get what you dreamed about, right? Like, that's kind of the idea that we live in. Here's the problem. Usually what that leads to is workaholism and sacrificing the good things in your life to get it. So while it's important to work hard, and we should work hard, no question about it, God also calls us to be human which means we're greatly dependent on God himself for both our hope and our rest as in the Sabbath. You see, God's heart is that we not only put him first, but that he be the person that we depend on for every single moment and every single aspect of life, that he be the motivating factor in why we would work in the first place, and he would be the hope that we have and not the American dream that we're pursuing. See, holiness is finding God as the all in all in our life. Second, Holiness is expressed horizontally, meaning with people, relationship with people. In Leviticus 19, we see that horizontal holiness has to do with social things, economic things, and political things. You see, God cares about holiness in every single aspect of our life. We can't compartmentalize Jesus, right? He, it's an ongoing relationship in every single component of our life. He wants his hand in it. And so at the heart of this section, we see God cares about respecting parents and the elderly, caring for the poor and marginalized, being a good neighbor, not exploiting the economically weak, not favoring the wealthy, political righteousness, especially when it comes to justice for all of those who are weak and marginalized. And guess what? He doesn't stop there. He hits at the heart of what some of our particular cultural setting would have, and that's sexual morality. You see, chapter 20 is dedicated to all of that. Holiness must be manifest in every single setting of our life. And the way God would call us to that is through not being like the world around us. It's a separation. You see, he tells Israel, hey, you know Egypt that I just freed you from? Don't be like them. And the Canaanites who are now occupying the promised land that you're going to, don't be like them either. He's setting them apart. He says, instead of being like them, care for the poor. Have a high sexual integrity. Promote justice in the entire land. You see, Leviticus shows us that God does not have this secular sacred divide when it comes to the life of his people. There's no divide between that which is holy and separate for God and those things that are not. No. See, like, we are to see Jesus rule and reign in every aspect of our life. So here's how that plays out. Your job 
isn't just something for the world. No, it is the way for you to display Jesus to the world. That's what your job is for. Your neighborhood, full of people who bear the image of God and not only need to see your holiness in your behavior, but they need to hear about the holiness of your God. Politics. People should be confused as to what political party you might be affiliated with. Here's why. It's a man-made government, which means that no matter what political party you decide to sideline yourself to, they will have things that would align with God's heart and many, many more things that don't. So here's the catch. We don't belong to this world or a political party. It's not our home, so stop pretending that it is. The last thing God covers is sexual purity. So while... I'm looking at Leviticus 20.10 and sees that, that the law says do not commit adultery and I don't need to follow that law because I'm not under the law anymore. It doesn't negate the fact that I, I follow God's heart from that law, right? So it means that the reason that I avoid sexual morality in my life has nothing to do with the law of Leviticus but everything to do with the love and grace that I've received from Jesus. That's why you fight sexual immorality. You don't stay in that stuff. See, we by grace have been given Jesus' holiness and righteousness before God. We've been made right before God by that, which out of that means we don't follow a group of do's and don'ts, but we start to become more like the Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. See, Leviticus in and of itself was an act of God's grace because they had no idea what that looked like. And so he said, here, here's my grace. Let me show you what holiness looks like. We've been given that same grace. That grace is Jesus himself being on display as the ultimate uh, image of the invisible God for us, walking in holiness and righteousness, giving his life as a sacrifice for us, and calling us by his spirit to walk in those same things. We've been given the same grace. And so that grace ought to drive us toward holiness, to more being like Jesus day after day after day. And guess what? Through that grace, we not only enter the presence of God, but we also get to enjoy it. We get to enjoy the presence of God. Flip over to Numbers 1 real quick. This is the next book in the Bible, by the way. Numbers chapter 1. Verse 1. It's not on the screen, sorry. I'll read it. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, catch this, in the tent of meeting. You see, God made a way where there was no way and allowed for man to enter his presence by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but by the continual work of holiness in his people. We get that same opportunity today. Amen? Let's pray.